Zara, I am so excited to talk about today's sponsor. It's the new film, Challenges. It's from the director of Call Me By Your Name, Luca Guadagnino, and stars and is produced by none other than our girl Zendaya. Yeah, you know I love her. You love her too. I love her so much. Zendaya plays Tashi Duncan, a former tennis prodigy turned coach who is married to a Grand Slam champion, currently on a losing streak. And if that's not bad enough, Tashi's strategy to help her husband break his curse sort of takes a surprising and awkward turn. Hmm, awkward indeed. Because now he must face off against his former best friend and Tashi's ex-boyfriend, Patrick. Zara, the tensions are running high. I know. Tashi's someone who makes no apologies for her game on and off the court. It's her game, her rules, but with her past and present colliding, Tashi must face reality and ask herself, what will it cost to win? Challenges is the sexy drama that everyone's talking about and it's definitely not one you want to miss. It's about passion, friendship and what happens when your past comes back to challenge you. You can grab a ticket from Tuesday the 26th. So grab your friends and get excited. I will be grabbing you and we are definitely going to be going to watch it. Oh, please. Thank you so much to Challenges for making this episode of Shameless possible. My parents never put on board me too much and didn't give me too much sympathy because I didn't want it. I kind of didn't revert into the shell maybe. I just kept kind of going up and up and up. And once you take one step, you kind of take the next and you just realise that it's your life and you've got to stand up for what you want and what you think's right and what you believe in, which is what I've kind of always done. And welcome to Shameless, the pop culture podcast for smart women who love dumb stuff. Today we are joined by the remarkable Jess Quinn. When Jess was nine, her life was thrown into disarray by a cancer diagnosis. Within the year, she would lose all of her hair and then one of her legs. Now, Jess has turned her biggest hurdle into her biggest triumph. Her career is built on the prosthetic limb that she wears every day, helping her show her 180,000 Instagram followers that beauty comes in many different sizes and forms. Here we talk with the advocate and influencer about disability, resilience, diversity and inspiration. It's a conversation that has really stuck with Zara and I ever since we sat down in Jess's Melbourne hotel room and it will continue to have an impact on us for a really, really long time. We hope you enjoy it. Here's Jess. Jess Quinn, welcome to Shameless in Conversation. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's taken us a while to get this one together because you obviously do not live in Melbourne. No. So welcome to Melbourne. Thank you. I love it here. What do you think of Melbourne? I really like it. Give us like a review. A review from from the outside. I feel like I haven't spent enough. I mean, I've been here for six days, but I also haven't been able to experience it properly, I feel, Um, because I've just been so busy with stuff. Um, But I really like it. It's pretty similar to Auckland, I find. It's like Auckland, but bigger. So interesting. Cool. I must say, this is probably going to be really controversial, but everyone's like the coffee in Melbourne's amazing, and I haven't had a good experience. Yet. <gasps> Wait, what do you mean? I know. Where I, I wasn't sure whether I should bring this up or not. No, no, no. <laughs> like, put it all on the table. Where, like, what's your issue with the coffee? I don't know. I just I feel like coffee at home's better. Are you like yeah. a coffee snob? Maybe. <laughs> there you go. Some people have told me before that the coffee in Melbourne tastes a bit dirty. Yeah, like it's a little bit um, too strong. Yeah. Maybe like a bit bitter. Or- yeah, yeah. there's definitely a sense of like bitterness to it. But I yeah. really like that. Yeah. We just got coffee around the corner, Zara. What did you think of that coffee? It was great coffee. Okay, well we need to give you the name of that cafe okay. then, and he maybe yeah, after this it was, we'll be like, I, th- I feel like it was the kind of coffee that you're taking issue with. Like that really bitter Melbourne type of coffee. But like you're either into it or you're not into it. I, that's yeah. what I think the issue is. But yeah, I don't maybe. like super bitter coffee either, but I still like Melbourne coffee. It's I must pretty... say I had a good one this morning, but I had a latte. and I usually drink black coffee, but today I was like, oh, I'm going to have a latte. Uh, yeah. So the latte was better, whereas the black coffee was just a bit like, whereas I like it at home better. Yeah. And I just, I was quite surprised. I was like, Melbourne's the place to be. And I haven't really experienced the food here, which I'm gutted about because everyone's like, the, the food food's here great. is amazing. I've just mm-hmm. Uber Eats the whole time, which is embarrassing. <gasps> not but at I've been all. super it's... tired. But the thing is, when you're working, that's what you want. Yeah, and it's so good here. Whereas at home, I live kind of quite far out of the city, so we get like McDonald's and your local kind of coffee club, and that's it. And I'm like, ugh. So here, I'm like, all the Uber Eats, it's so good. Amazing. Jess, we start every interview in the same way, which is to ask, what are you reading, watching, or listening to at the moment? 
Um, I actually just finished the, um, what's it called, um, Michelle Obama book. Oh, Becoming. 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 Oh, my gosh. It took me a century to read it because it's like the, it's just massive. Um, but I loved it so much. It's like much. the length of the Bible, though. It book. literally is the length of the Bible. But it was so good. And I, you know, it's those books you read that you keep picking them up and putting them down and picking yeah. it up. And then I eventually got through it and it was amazing. What was your favorite chapter in the book or what was your favorite anecdote story? Um... I think, I mean, why I love the book, I was just so inspired by her as a person. Mm. Like, the fact that she has this incredible, or had this incredible career on her own before she met Barack and all of that kind of stuff happened with all of a sudden being in the White House. She kind of just, like, took a step back because she knew it was right for, not only for her or for him, but for the country. And she knew other people needed that. Like, it was just Mm. the most selfless act, which I think was really cool. Um, The chapter I found the most interesting was when they actually talked about the White House stuff. And they talk about, like, the, I can't remember what they call it, but all the cars. They travel in like a zillion mm. lineup of cars. I can't remember what they call it. Um, Something with a motorcade? Yeah. Motorcade, that's the word. Um, and they talked about how they store his actual blood type blood in the car just in case something happens so there's like a bag of his blood there like if there's a shooting or whatever and I was just like fascinated about how it is interesting though the logistics of that I also really love the idea that her book was released before his and I think that was very much speaks to like she did do the selfless thing for eight years so she can sort of cement herself as a person in her own right now that it's all done yeah it was so and I think she's done that really well she's I, I think of her as her own person, not as Barack Obama's wife, you mm. know, which is really cool. So I just love, I just encourage everyone to read that book. What's her amazing. writing like? Is she a good writer? Yeah, I would love to know if she wrote it. You know, a lot of yeah. autobiographies are mm. kind of ghostwritten. Um, it's sound, if she didn't, they nailed her voice. Not, not that I know her personally, but... <laughs> it sounded I, so like Michelle, I know. So much like Michelle. Um, but I just, I imagine, like, it sounded so genuine in her tone and in... The other thing was too was how personal it was, the stuff mm. that you learn about her, which I can't even remember now, but I just remember thinking like, wow, she just, sh-. I mean, you have to, the book's so thick, You've, she's clearly shared everything. Yeah. Um, but she did and just did it in such a honest way, um, even talks about how much she hates politics and Interesting. Yeah, it was really cool. Are you into podcasts and TV? I'm hugely into podcasts. TV, I'm getting back into TV. I go through ways. For yep. me, I've had a really busy couple of years and I've learned that TV is my, like, I like to just watch crap TV. It's the only way I can switch off. So I'm into that. Um podcasts are my thing I always have my my little headphones in my ears what are your um, faves what am I obviously shameless oh uh, you don't have to say that. <laughs> I know I don't have to say that but I genuinely do listen to you guys a lot um what's the other podcast I kind of move around I've been listening to um is it how stuff works or football? how I built this how I built this that's the one um the business one I actually listened to the the bumble one the other day which I found fascinating that is episode. such a ripper story interview. is incredible mm-hmm. yeah really cool and i listened to the airbnb one a while ago i love that it's so, a great podcast but I, I kind of float between kind of just like generic topics to the entrepreneurial stuff to like fitness nutrition kind of stuff because i'm into that yeah i just float around amazing mm. jess our second question is always the same for you we'll kind of split it into two halves what was your childhood like pre-cancer mm-hmm. and then we'll talk about what your childhood was like post-cancer mm-hmm Pre-cancer, I don't remember too much. It's kind of, it's a funny situation. You know when you you don't know what you remember from photos and what you remember from real life? Um, So I feel like a lot of the things I remember have just been triggered from seeing photos. Um, I was a super active kid, so that's kind of largely what I remember of being a kid I was I played every sport possible I was a mad runner I actually just began competing and running when I kind of before I found out about the cancer so I remember being super active I had an amazing I still have an amazing family um so I was really lucky in that regard I've got two sisters who are completely my best friends that's really cool but yeah apart from that I don't remember a huge lot and I don't know if it's because of the trauma that I went through or the fact that I was only nine and and less which you know most of us don't remember our childhood surely a bit of both yeah probably what was your first memory of something not being right there was none really I um I fractured my leg which is how they found the cancer so life was completely normal until the day that I broke my bones so um which is quite interesting and I I would love to know if I actually did feel any bits of pain that I didn't Mm. realize you know um because I have no idea how long that was living in there how did you break the bone so I was standing on a soccer ball, you know, you just like try balance on a ball <laughs> thing, kind of fun, oh. um, and just balance on it. And my femur bone snapped in half, which is the strongest bone in the body, which shouldn't happen when you're just balancing on a soccer ball. But I went into, um, got obviously admitted into hospital, went straight into surgery, spent about 
four, three to four months trying to heal the bone. Um, they thought it was just a broken femur bone and then realised that something wasn't right because it wasn't healing. So um, that's a bit of an interesting story in itself because the fact that a nine-year-old kid could snap her femur bone pretty much doing nothing um, kind of should raise some red flags that didn't get raised. But people make mistakes. <laughs> so they find the cancer. Mm. How did your life change? I mean, cancer is such a malignant word. Sorry to use that. Mm. It's quite meta. But as soon as the C word is thrown out, I guess the whole course of your life is changed from that moment. Totally. What was your understanding? You were nine? Yeah. What was your understanding of it at that point? It's actually really funny now that I've gotten a lot older and I have friends who have children and they're like, oh, my daughter's nine. And I'm like, oh, my God, it's so little. It's crazy to think about how young I really was. But, yeah, it was obviously – quite a long process because I was so used to hospitals by that point I'd been in there a lot with the the break of my leg and I'd had surgeries and I'd kind of been in that world and so then I got back into doing rehab and there was a whole lot of pain going on so they realized something was wrong and then they did a whole lot of tests um, and a biopsy which is when they obviously found the cancer and yeah I I don't actually remember being sat down and told I don't remember how I felt about it I just remember all of a sudden I was being treated for cancer I remember Like it's cancer, as you say, is quite a scary word. And right now, if you know, I heard that word in relation to my name, it would be quite scary. But um, I think as a kid, you kind of it was scary, but you don't really understand the implications of what things are going to have on your future. You kind of like an hour for a kid is a really long time, you know, let alone your whole lifetime. So yeah, it was interesting. My papa had died of cancer about two years before, and my dad had had a tumor in his stomach about, I don't know, a few years before as well. So it was a word that I knew of, which in hindsight I think must have been so scary for my mum having just lost her dad and now her daughter has the same disease. So, um, But for me, I don't really know. It's, it's a weird memory. Do you think that your parents were trying to shield much of that from you? Like they took, I mean, you were mm. only nine, they clearly would have taken a lot of the burden. And mm. have you spoken to them since about that time and what they did take on and what they were trying to protect you from? Yeah, I think there's a bit of both. I think they took on so much obviously there's conversations that I will never know happened and they probably don't even remember but I also think and I remember knowing at the time that they wanted to be really open with me about the whole thing you know I was dealing with it there was no point in surprising me with a treatment that I had to have or a surgery that I had to have Um, so they were really open which I think is why I I kind of struggled a lot when I grew up because I kind of had to grow up so quickly so I kind of matured a lot faster than I should have so I struggled um, in school a bit later on but I think that a lot of that has to do with that because they just involved me so much in those conversations because they knew that I kind of needed to know. But I think there would have been a lot of conversations that I also probably had no mm-hmm. idea about or kind of got the the very basic instructions for. You mentioned before that you're really close with your sisters. You're like mm-hmm. best friends. What is that dynamic like when you're the sick kid in the family? Did that, around that time when you were nine years old, did that cross your mind that a lot of the attention was probably on you or were your sisters kind of put off by that as kids yeah I mean they were amazing and they still are amazing they were so selfless in the fact that they just knew that this wasn't their time kind of thing and mum and dad were also great at trying to spread the attention where they could and we had so much support that my nana um, flew up and lived with us for six months so that my parents could either be with me or with my sisters Um, but yeah I remember I remember it obviously was so hard that my little sister was I think which is so little and my older sister's two years older than me but I remember it just being like every time they would arrive at the hospital it was just completely normal like it was so cool having them around we would just play the games we would normally play just from a hospital bed mm-hmm. instead but I remember yeah they were just incredible and I, I never remember them once complaining about having to sit through hospital appointments or whatever it was which is the coolest thing ever and I think probably why we're all so close now um but I, I actually recently I was trying to find a whole lot of old photos and I found a whole lot of um videos like VCRs and I started I managed to download them onto a DVD so I watched them and there was this one video I was really sick in hospital on Christmas day it was the worst I literally nearly lost my life on that day and there's a video of I was obviously at the hospital with my dad and mum had woken up with the girls at Christmas on Christmas day in the morning at home and there's this video and the, my sisters wanted to start opening their presents but mum was like wait we need to go take these up to Jess and like the way she just explained it to them and they were all just like oh yeah you're right like okay like just being it was it was kind of like being like a ghost in your own life like I was I was obviously alive at that time but I wasn't in that situation that I would normally have been in on Christmas morning with my family so I was like watching over and feeling all of these emotions in recent times of what my family were going through kind of looking from the outside almost it was really quite an interesting thing to go through but just seeing how they had to kind of change their whole childhood and also grow up so quickly was yeah 
What's the conversation that is had with you when you know or your parents know that you need to amputate the leg? Mm. Like, do you remember that conversation specifically? Do you remember any of that? Or do you just remember the aftermath? I remember a little bit of it. The surgery I had, I was the first in New Zealand to have it. So it was a super rare amputation. and It's called a rotation plastic. Rotation plastic, yes. yeah. I would explain it, but it will probably just confuse people so much. People can Google Googling it. it. Yeah, yeah, Google it. And I think, because I read a caption where you explained it and I was like, I need a visual you need of a exactly visual. what's happened. And then totally. once you see the visual, it's very easy. It yeah. makes sense. Yeah, totally. But it's mind-blowing how mm. that works. Um But I remember being told that and what was going to happen. I don't remember the moment where it was, okay, you're now going to lose your leg. And I think almost what I was saying before, I was just so used to almost bad things happening. I was just living. I was in that state for probably nine months, almost a year by that point. I'd had gone through all the chemotherapy. I had no hair by this point. I think I weighed about 18 kgs. I had a feeding tube in my nose, you know. So life was just that at that point. Um, And I thought later on the decision was made to amputate my leg, but I actually spoke to Dad recently, and I think they knew quite early on that that was going to happen, but they had to go through the chemo process just to eliminate as much as they could first. Um, So I remember it being really scary. The day of my surgery, I woke up ready to have my leg amputated, and they had some problems with the anaesthetist, so my surgery got cancelled and postponed by a week, which was horrific like obviously you're about to lose your leg and then oh we're gonna do it next week actually you know, it's like cool I'll just sit and watch tv yeah, for the next let me seven just days chill, totally um but I obviously it was a really scary time had I gone through it right now it would have been so much scarier and of what I was saying before it's just you don't really realize how much something's going to affect your life when you're nine whereas now I almost know too much that it would freak me out. I mean, being wheeled into my into the operating room, I was in complete hysterics. So I obviously knew something was going on and I was scared. Um, but, yeah, you don't really look so far ahead as to where it could take you or where it could stop you going. It's quite a scary thing. And I think also just being so alone in the situation, given the uniqueness of my amputation and in a time before social media, I couldn't just look up someone else with rotation plasty. Dad had to go on some forum on, on MSN or something and find like a, so there's a conversation chat of someone who had had it in Canada and got in touch with them. So it was just quite scary not knowing what it was going to look like and what yeah. the outcome could be. It's, it's quite funny when you think back on life when something like that's happened and you, you realise that, that that was you at some point. You know, I look back on old photos and I'm like, wow, you know, that it just feels like a whole other life, really. What was it like looking down at your new leg for the first time? Yeah, pretty scary. I remember I woke up in the ICU, so my surgery was 14 hours, which is a really long time. And I woke up in the ICU about four hours later once the anaesthetic had worn off and I moved my foot, which will make sense once you Google um, rotation plasty, but I moved my foot about four hours after surgery, which was insane. The fact that my brain just reconnected my whole body like that when it had been re-rotated is really, really crazy, but amazing. And I I don't, again, I don't really remember feeling, I don't remember the feeling really. I think it must have been really strange. I was fully plastered up, so I had so much plaster on, it was insane. Um, And I had that for about a few months, so I think it was quite weird. It's obviously a strange thing to look at. I remember, you know, my sisters would come by and they would see it for the first time. There was kind of this, this process, but I was really lucky to just constantly have so much normality around me. My parents tried to bring so much normality into the situation that was so abnormal and they never kind of made me feel any worse than I needed to not that any parent would purposely do that but you know it was just like this conscious decision to just make sure life was as normal as it could be Mm. for me I hate sympathy that's one thing and I hate it now so there was kind of there was none of that like you know poor you kind of thing it was just like why do you hate sympathy even now I I think because I've grown up with a lot of it you know if I I walk down the street and my leg looks very normal, except for the fact that my thigh probably looks like I have a sports bandage on. So I'll get asked at least once a day, why am I limping or what's what's on your knee or what's happened to you or whatever it is. And, and that's fine. People aren't being malicious. And every time it's like, oh, I lost my leg to cancer. And just the look on their face is just sheer like sadness. And, and they just look, you know, like sympathy you know they look kind of oh poor you kind of thing and I've always grown up like that but I've never seen my situation like that I mean I'm I talked about it recently the the word disabled doesn't kind of resonate with me for me disabled's a lack of ability which I don't have I feel super abled so I think I've never wanted to be put in that situation where where I'm looked upon to be kind of in a sad situation like pity, or, pity. Yeah. yeah totally I hate being pitied um so it's something that I just tried to stay away from and project how I wanted to be seen mm-hmm. I guess um which isn't 
in a sympathetic way. You know, you often see, I'm probably jumping ahead to a whole lot of stuff, but you often see in the media that, you know, people with disabilities are projected in a really sad way, whether it's through a TV ad after they've had a car accident and they're sitting in their wheelchair and they're so sad and it's it's not, it doesn't have to be like that, you know, but that's kind of the narrative that society put out. So it's something I've tried to fight against. And, and I also just would, excuse the pun, but just wanted to get up and stand on my own two feet, you know, so I don't want people to be like, oh, let me help you up. Like, I'll get myself up, you know, I'll ask if I need help. So I think that's why I've just kind of always pushed sympathy away a little bit. Coming up after the break, Jess talks about why she started a petition to change advertising standards in New Zealand. But first, a word from our sponsor. I'm guessing this sense of resilience must have taken some time to build up as well. And it's great that you had such a beautiful family around you, but you're nine and you've got this new leg and you're going into probably one of the trickiest parts of life, which Mm. is adolescence, where everyone's bodies are changing and everyone's going through a lot of confidence issues. Mm. How did you cope with that? Like in a school environment or in a friendship environment where you did have this difference, how was that for you to cope with that when everyone else was also going through body changes? Mm. At first it was totally fine. I, and I constantly am grateful for the fact that this happened to me when I was a kid because kids are so resilient. I just got up and got on with it and tried to get back into sports. I ended up playing golf and table tennis because I just wanted to find things where I didn't have to move too much because I couldn't get back to team sports, which is hilarious. How'd you go with golf? <laughs> yeah, not well. <laughs> <laughs> Moving along. <laughs> Moving along. <laughs> um, but... Yeah, I I really did. I was fine in the initial phase. I remember getting my first prosthetic and I was just like, oh my God, I have a leg. This is so exciting. But it was more like, oh, I have a leg and now I have to learn how to use it. So there was obviously a lot of stuff I had to go through in that sense. But once I got to kind of, I think it would have been 12, 13, probably that's when I really just started going downhill very quickly. And I think it was just fully a body confidence, body image kind of issue that I had obviously Having gone through what I went through, my leg looked so unusual. It was almost, yeah, it's it's so strange how it looks, basically. And back then, I didn't even have the prosthetics that I have now. So I really struggled, I guess, understanding, I guess, who I was. And, you know, my friends are starting to go to parties and do all that kind of stuff and wearing mini skirts and starting to wear high heels. And I'm just kind of, I can't wear high heels. And I didn't want to wear mini skirts. I didn't wear shorts for the first eight years of my new life which yeah, I think I was about 17 when I put on my first pair of shorts, which is pretty insane. And so in summer you'd wear full-length skirts or yeah, jeans? Yeah, or wow. like, you know, the like knee-length denim shorts, which were luckily were like kind of cool back then. <laughs> the board shorts. I mean, sure. <laughs> were they? So I'm pretty sure they were. Maybe that was like, a New Zealand thing. Like, they were now. <laughs> so, yeah, I just, I, I struggled a lot. I, I would wake up every morning, so the nature of my surgery left my leg really skinny, my thigh area, and I would wrap T-shirts and socks and anything I could find around my leg to kind of build out the look of a thigh and then just wrap it with masking tape to kind of wow. secure it. And then I would put on jeans so it looked like I had a thigh, um, which I'm sure must have looked so lumpy and weird. Um, but to me, it was a little bit better. So there were so many things I was going through to try feel normal and to try actually just be normal because I was sick of not being normal and at that age all I wanted to be and I think all anyone wants to be is just whatever this normal word is Mm. but it's something that I think we all kind of desire this perfection um so I was trying to chase that and I think also at this point it was probably about five years post what I'd gone through and I think the reality of what I went through was hitting me when I was a kid I was like oh yeah I had cancer whatever you know where I was like oh crap this is forever you know I I have no leg for the rest of my life so I was kind of going through a double whammy and that probably, I went through that for about two years. I literally cried myself to sleep pretty much every night. And, and it's funny cause I, I'm no one amongst my family and my friends is this like strong person and, and I am, but at the time I just couldn't, I, I was confident to them and I was confident on the outside, but inside I was just completely hating what I was going through. I do think that's a big flaw in our conversations around cancer though. And mm. you see this in so many different cases in that you get cancer, you fight cancer, you beat cancer. And I think a lot of people think that the journey, for lack of a better word, Mm. ends there. Mm -hmm. Has there been other times since that period of being 15 where the reality of the entire thing has set in and you've kind of had to navigate that and and work through those things and those emotions and those thoughts? Yeah, I think um, that was definitely the worst time for me. And I, I somehow, I don't know how, but I found my way through that. And I just became the most confident person in the world. And I realized that that 
and that's where, why I talk about beauty so much now is that beauty is in confidence. When I started being confident about what I went through, I realized everyone else was too. And I kind of projected how I wanted to be seen. So, um, that kind of changed, but especially in the last probably three years since I've been kind of thrown into this social media world and my whole life and career is me telling my story. I do speaking, I do modeling and I do, um, social media, which all relates around my story and, I love it and it's so amazing, but it's also, I guess, been kind of a a form of um, rediscovery for me. And I've had to go back and, you know, when I'm writing my talks, I'm talking about the stuff that happened when I was a really, really young kid. So I have to go back in and dive deeper into that. So I think it's brought up a lot of, a lot more emotions and I've learned a lot more about what I went through almost because I've had to revisit it because I'm talking about it Mm. so much. So that's been a really interesting process. I've burnt out a few times over the last three years and I think I'm not an emotional person so I won't do an interview and then go cry or whatever because I'm like Ugh. so because I, I don't I don't feel that way towards what I went through I feel kind of happy about it if anything but I think subconsciously it's kind of been almost a reopening of the mm. of, of whatever whatever I'm reopening yeah <laughs> so yeah it's been it's been interesting for all you do for body positivity and all you speak about it and all you champion it it wasn't until June this year that you shared a photo of what your leg looks like underneath the prosthetic mm. and you said it was a big deal for you that you were sharing that photo and that it's not necessarily what people would think it looks like and that Mm. it had taken you a while to actually want to share that with your 180,000 followers. Mm. Why did it take you that long and what was that decision process like to share that photo? Split decision. I, like all of my Instagram posts, none of them are pre-planned. I'll be sitting on the couch one night and I'll take a photo of my leg and write a caption in the moment Um, and that's what happened that day. And I, I kind of... I've always been super open about what I went through. I talk about the name of my surgery, all of that kind of stuff, but I've never really shown it. And I, not in a conscious way, I guess every day I don't walk, I have my prosthetic on, so I don't walk around um, without it. So therefore that I just didn't really share it too much. Um, and it is so unusual. It's so hard to explain to people that it almost was just easier to just be like, yeah, I lost my leg. And then people are like, oh, you were below the knee or an above the knee amputation. And I'm like, no, just somewhere in the middle. <laughs> literally so um I kind of just didn't and then the social media process for me as I mentioned I literally fell into it it happened overnight for me and it's always been me telling my story and I've always been super raw and super honest and that's kind of just gotten more and more and more because I'll share one thing and I realize it helps someone and then I share another thing and now it's just become a, a really safe place and I kind of have no boundaries anymore and I just realized that I mean maybe this will help someone if I can share what I really look like on you know well if there's another nine-year-old who's facing that surgery Mm -hmm. instead of going through forums and group chats they'll be able to see someone like you right yeah totally and and that's happened a lot you know I've been in touch with a lot of families whose kids are having the same surgery which has been really cool for them to see all the things that I'm doing and know that that's possible and I'm sure that would have been amazing for my parents had that been the case back when I was sick and also for me it started when I just would show my leg opposed to my leg off I just I figured everyone grows up feeling different in some way so if I can show my differences and be really proud about them then hopefully they can feel the same about theirs even if they have two legs they'll have something else that they're insecure about or whatever it might be so it's just yeah that's where I think Instagram and social media can be so powerful it's just that connection and that inspiration that you can offer to other people I wanted to ask you about your relationship with your prosthetics I know Mm. I read an interview that you did a couple of years ago where you spoke about you've got your running leg your swimming leg your you know lifelike leg and you said also before that you don't identify with this word disabled because you feel incredibly able in mm. almost every aspect of your life. Can you talk about those things together and what they allow you to do in your relationship with them? Because I imagine it's been huge for you. Yeah, it's been really huge um, in many different ways, learning the technology, understanding that we maybe don't have access to all the technology in New Zealand that is available around the world. and. Also just not, I was about to say putting my foot down, um, <laughs> like actually putting my foot down for what I want. I've always been, I'm kind of not one at the limb centre to be like, I don't settle. They're like, oh, here's your leg. And I'm like, it doesn't work properly. Why? You know, I, I've always pushed the boundaries in that sense for myself and for other people as well. And um, like as an example, I'm supposed to just get one leg, but I was like, well, I need a leg that I can swim in. They were like, no, just take your leg off to swim. And I'm like, well, like, how do I get around the pool? You know, so I've always pushed the boundaries in that area. And so, yeah, I've got multiple legs. I have a leg that I wear every day that looks I about five years ago got this lifelike skin on it so if you see my toes that you wouldn't know which was my left and my right foot wow. pretty much that's really quite crazy 
at the beginning that wasn't an absolutely and it still is an amazing thing to just sometimes I actually just want to feel human I just want to step out to also not think about it and to just be me without without that added me with the the one leg kind of thing even though I have it you know it's just nice to look down and see 10 toes instead of five and then I've also realized since getting the blade which is my running prosthetic I got that about three or four years ago because I wanted to learn to run and try to get back to I'd always been super sporty even since losing my leg I've tried to regain my strength in so many ways but running something I've always struggled with so I was like I'll get this running blade and that was a really interesting process because the running blade it, it looks nothing like a leg it's a carbon fiber mm. tick it's a spring it's pretty so cool to be honest it it's very super cool. cool and I feel badass you as look like a superhero yeah. <laughs> and I feel like one I love it so much but the first time I put it on I put it on the gym changing rooms and I stepped out in the gym because I was going to training and I remember just feeling so scared because I was so used to wearing a leg that looked so much like a leg that I'd almost lost my own I guess reality in a way because uh, I'd not that I was purposely hiding away from it, but for a time I just wanted to kind of feel human. Um, and I've learned to love that, the the blade. And I, I mean, I did Dancing with the Stars last year. I wore that blade for three months solid. Um, and I loved that. I jumped to the cafe in between rehearsals and the leg. And, you know, it just kind of became a part of me. And then I have my swimming leg, which has always had not as nice of a skin on it as my everyday leg, but it had a skin on it. It kind of looked somewhat like a leg. And in recent times, I just told them to take it off and it's just got a pole on it, which I wear in a lot of photo shoots because... For me, it's just, it's cool. When I was walking around yesterday in Melbourne, because I had to walk to the fashion show, and I was wearing it, and I actually just felt so cool. You know, whereas back in the day, I would have felt like almost, oh, people are staring or whatever in that leg, whereas now I'm like, how cool is this? Like, I've got a carbon fiber leg. Well, it kind of like so, is your superpower in some ways, because you've owned it so completely. It's yeah. like your what makes you special. Totally. Even. And it's, yeah, my, I was actually talking to a girlfriend the other day. It's like, it's my unique thing, and it's, it's like, Someone will bet to her, oh, do you know, do you know Jess? And I'm like, oh, no. It's like, oh, you know my friend with the one leg? Oh, yeah, like, <laughs> I'm like, unique, my you know? Yeah, I, it's my identifier. <laughs> I want to go back just quickly when you said I have always pushed the boundaries. Like if the mm. leg is not fitting or if it's not functioning right, I will push back and I will tell them. Where does that come from, that sense of self-assuredness, particularly when you're young and you're sick and a lot of bad things are happening? Mm. It would be very easy to kind of like crawl into this shell or retreat into a shell and not find that confidence yeah. and that self-assuredness. Where do you think it came from? I have no idea but I definitely have it and I've always had it I don't know if it comes from my parents even recently I was talking to dad about something and he was like yeah but you're not you don't speak like your average 26 year old because you know if, if I go to the limb center and you know I'll be on the phone to them like no this is what I need and this is how I need it and this is when I need it done by that like, it'll take three weeks I need it done on one you know Let like tell you something yeah. <laughs> so I don't I honestly don't know I think I've always had this confidence I think Maybe because my parents never put on walled me too much and didn't give me too much sympathy because I didn't want it, I kind of didn't revert into the shell maybe. I just kept kind of going up and up and up. And once you take one step, you kind of take the next and you just realise that you, it's your life and you've got to stand up for what you want and what you think's right and what you believe in, which is what I've kind of always done. One of our favourite posts from you was actually one recently where you wrapped cabbage around your foot and you shared it <laughs> yes. and you wrote, welcome to my life. Yes, that's a backwards foot with cabbage wrapped around it, secured with glad wrap. I dare you to tell me something even stranger that you've seen this week, but this is what healing looks like. Unfortunately, healing isn't always the beautiful meditation, crystals and oils vibe that we see. More often than not, for me especially, healing is all of the weird things that get recommended to you while you hold hope that maybe something will work what do you feel towards the instagramification for lack of a better word we'll just make one up (laughs) of healing and health and wellness on that platform when for you it doesn't always look pretty and Mm. it doesn't always look like something that's super shareable yeah I mean yes it ends up landing with me having cabbage on my foot which is quite hilarious but that that was another moment where I, I was literally just sitting in bed and I was like oh well, I want to share this because when else do you have cabbage on your foot yeah there is this sense you know I do watch a lot of YouTube and stuff and there's you know this is my self-care morning routine and I'm like oh for god's sake you drink how many glasses of lemon water and then you do what and that took you how long you know people think that's going to heal them I think all of those things that people project help in life and they help with your wellness journey and they might help make you feel amazing but when you're really in a situation where your health is being threatened or your life is being slowed down or altered because of whatever you're dealing with then you need to actually resort to things that are going to make a huge difference you know I've been struggling with a lot for the last year in terms of my leg and drinking lemon water in the morning and holding a crystal isn't actually going to heal it's going to help and it's probably going to help my 
my mindset maybe, but it's not genuinely going to help what I'm going through. So I think I just wanted to break down that world that we also all need to find the things that suit us and we can't just look at someone on Instagram and be like, oh, cool, I'm going to follow that exact healing program and I'm going to feel all better. And also the fact that it's okay to live in a state of not being healed or perfect or whatever it is. You know, I my leg decided, the leg that I have that I put inside my prosthetic decided to swell about four or five, probably six months ago now. So pretty much every morning for the last six months, I haven't been able to put on my leg for about the first hour of the day because it's so swollen. And finding a there's nothing online that's going to tell me how to fix that so I've just had to research a whole lot of things spend stupid amounts of money seeing some really holistically interesting people (laughs) um and putting cabbage on my foot but I do think healing comes in so many different shapes and sizes and whether that's healing for our mental health or healing for a swollen foot it's yeah it's not black and white and it's not pretty it's not um, laying on a bed with crystals around me all the time. Sometimes it is just lying there with cabbage on. <laughs> <laughs> on your functional leg, you have a tattoo that reads "Still Standing." What does that mean to you? And what was your decision to actually get that done? <laughs> I'm a spare of the moment tattoo girl. I've actually got two. <laughs> you seem like you're a spare of the moment <laughs> person, <laughs> Jess. <laughs> I think I am. I um, I've got two being removed at the moment, so I'm probably oh someone who shouldn't be getting tattoos. <laughs> but I actually got that. I went in. It was my anniversary for my amputation. I think it was last year. It would have been 17 years, and I got my anniversary date written on my arm and then halfway through I was like can you do another one on the back of my leg because I'd always wanted a tattoo on the back of my leg and I was like he was like what do you want and I was like I don't know I'm still standing maybe because for me I liked the idea and that's how I think of my life is uh, so many times my life has tried to knock me down and get in the way and I'm still standing and so I got the tattoo it hurt like hell because I actually had um compartment syndrome in the bottom half of my good leg and I didn't realize so it was my muscles were already so tight so putting a needle in there was a really bad idea um but it was it was awesome and I I don't know I I love that tattoo but I I actually stepped out on the street and I took a photo and I put it on my Instagram and my dance partner from Dancing with the Stars messaged me and he was like oh my goodness you got a Dancing with the Stars tattoo because we dance our best dance we did that got us to the finale was to I'm Still Standing by Elton John so it was quite I hadn't even thought of that when I got it I literally got it for my resilience and that kind of attitude I've always had and so it was kind of a, a double whammy. Jess, you're here because you walked at Melbourne Fashion Week. Mm -hmm. Can you talk to us about diversity, not only on catwalks, but in all forms of media? Why was it important for you to walk at Melbourne Fashion Week? You also walked in New Zealand Fashion Week, is that right? Last year, yeah. 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 What's behind that? Yeah, so I've started doing quite a lot of photo shoots. I got signed to a modelling agency in LA about a year and a half ago, um, and recently one here in Australia. And yeah, I think... I grew up feeling really different for obvious reasons Um, and it wasn't until I got a lot older that I realized everyone else grew up feeling different as well and you know quite a cool story was obviously I didn't wear shorts for eight years and I when I got signed to my agency in LA I spoke to um, my modeling manager over there who's an incredible plus size model and we were having a great conversation and I talked about how I didn't wear shorts for eight years and she was like I think I know some other people and I was like wait what and then so once I got to LA she had arranged this photo shoot and there was a whole group of her models who are all really diverse women who had for some reason hated their legs growing up. They had two legs, they just hated them for different reasons, whether it was scars or the size or the colour or whatever it was. They didn't like their legs, so none of them had worn shorts for their childhood and some of them until the day of that photo shoot. And so we did this photo shoot because it was coming into summer saying just wear the shorts. And for me that was the coolest moment to realise that other people could grow up feeling the same things because of different insecurities and that we all grow up feeling different in some way from our peers or from from our friends. And I kind of realised I wasn't someone who grew up wanting to be like a model or wanting to be a model. Um, I, I kind of just knew that I was different and that there was no, no one like me in the media, that I wasn't represented, but I thought I was, again, alone in that because having one leg's reasonably unique. And then I realised that, most of us aren't represented in the media there's kind of this cookie cutter mold of perfection put out there and it's something that I just I don't understand I I I don't want young girls walking to school seeing a billboard and comparing themselves to that when often the model in that billboard doesn't exist because they've been so photoshopped to look like that so I just started taking a stand for it I think I realized I had a really unique image that I could use to take a stand for that I could do photo shoots with my blade and all that kind of stuff. So I did a photo shoot a while ago, which is what went viral, kind of leading to my Instagram following about three years ago. And ever since, it's just grown since there. I've had more opportunities to do runway shows and 
and photo shoots and work with brands to get that message of diversity out there because and, and it's grown so much when I started three years ago I'm not saying that I created this change it's just there's so many people now speaking about it and you know three years ago there wasn't that much in the media about diversity and it was kind of abnormal to see someone I hate saying the word diversity because to me that's human everyone's diverse, humankind yeah humankind totally but yeah it's something that I've been fighting for for a while and I yeah, I just am using my image to do it. It's not always easy walking a runway. Not not easy, especially when your leg's not working properly and you're wearing shoes that you can't normally wear. But for me, I'm kind of using my image to take a stand for something that I truly believe in. And yeah. You touched on suddenly becoming some kind of social media influencer <laughs> almost overnight. Mm. What has that process been like to have an incredibly personal story and that personal story being the reason largely that you've gained this incredible following Mm. has that been hard to navigate sort of making that I mean you said before it's been hard and you've had to dig up a lot of other stuff but has that been very strange that that's the thing that sort of like catapulted you into almost fame Mm. really weird yeah Yeah. and and it literally I got 10,000 followers overnight and about 70,000 within three months so it it just literally (laughs) happened and I was working in a job that I'd spent four years at uni trying to get so it was quite an interesting process to all of a sudden be in this world and it was at a time when social media influencers were coming very known and it was, you know, before that you didn't really know what a social media influencer was. It was, a, it was kind of happening in that time and it wasn't something that I'd ever aspired to be or do. The world of social media kind of scared me a little bit and I I kind of, yeah, I didn't really know how to handle it so I reached out to get some help and some management because I didn't really know what to do. I didn't not like social media because I believed that there was so much power in reaching people that you can't normally reach from all around the world. But also there's such a toxic and scary side of social media that I think can be quite polarizing for people. So I wanted to also stay clear of that. So it's been three or four years of me trying to navigate the balance between that and, you know, also I've earn, earning money through social media, doing brand collaborations. I've been really strict from the start to, I mean, I turned down probably 80% of the work that comes through because... I don't want to be a billboard for other brands. You know, that's not my purpose on social media. I have a message that I want to get out there. So it's been really amazing to work with some brands who have the same message to kind of heighten that. Do you think that there would be some brands or have you ever felt like there are some brands who are trying to leverage your story for their image? And commercial gain, yeah. Yeah, I've been really lucky with the brands I've worked with. I think there's been opportunities that have come through that I haven't taken that definitely would have gone down that path. And I spoke at a forum the other day with Fashion Week and we spoke about diversity and inclusion and a huge thing, a topic that I speak about a lot is the idea of tokenism. Um, And this just isn't in social media, but, you know, the amount of times that I'm the clearly the token tick, the diversity box girl. The poster girl girl for diversity, yeah. At a photo shoot is quite um, hilarious. And on the panel... Um, we had a plus size model as well who's gone through the same thing. She's often the token plus size model at the photo shoots. And it's a really hard one because I'm like, yay, they're doing something. But also, A, are you using this because you know body image and body positivity and all those moments is super trendy. So you know it's going to go well for you. Or are you doing this authentically? Um, and it's hard to it's easy to see I think like you can tell when brands are being authentic about it I was about to say I think even our dealings with brands it's easy to tell when a brand has like a bit of heart behind their campaign Mm -hmm. and it's not just like a quick fix like here diversity let's do it right now it's like more subtle and ingrained than that I think you can tell right you can totally tell and it's hard to even turn down the ones that you can tell aren't authentic because at the end of the day, the young girl walking to school seeing myself or someone like me on a billboard, that's going to make her feel better whether it's tokenism or not. So, And tokenism, it's at least one step in the right direction. So it's a really hard balance to find, but it's a very interesting conversation. Something I'm huge about at the moment is is the idea of diversity, but also the idea of inclusion, because I think they're two very different things. And I heard a really great thing the other day, and it said something like um, diversity diversity is being invited to the party and inclusion is being invited to dance. And I was like, I really like that, because you can be diverse, you can represent all sorts of people, but if you're not, I guess, making them feel welcome, or this, is, this goes to everything in the workplace and media everywhere, if you're not making them feel welcome if, or if you're not representing them in the right, in the right way, then that's not inclusion you know you're kind of just ticking a diversity box and moving to make yourself feel better rather than make the world a better place totally that quote's awesome it's really cool and I think that speaks so many volumes for so much volume for particularly in the workplace because you need to be inclusive as well as being diverse because they are different things 
Jess, another way that you're using your social media platform for good and a reason that we love what you do so much is that you're also leading the charge when it comes to a petition for tighter regulations around advertising and Photoshop. Mm-hmm. Talk us through that. Where did that come from? <laughs> yeah, that was a funny thing. I actually did a post today and I was like, why do I keep throwing myself so far out of my comfort zone? <laughs> <laughs> Here we are. Impulsive um, Jessica. Yeah, impulsive Jess. I, that, this is this was impulsive <laughs> Jess. I um so I had an image of mine photoshopped about a year ago, and I did a photo shoot for a magazine. What I always speak about is being really raw and honest. Um, and then I see the magazine in the shop, and I was like, "Good photos, Jess. You look cool." And then I asked for the photos for my portfolio, and I got an email back. And one folder was the photos that I'd seen in the magazine, and another folder said untouched. And the email itself said. I've included the untouched ones, um, but they're clearly not as good or something like that. And I was like, sorry, pardon. <laughs> um, and it just startled me. Like, A, who are you to tell me that I don't look good? I went to the shoot that day feeling amazing. Um, so the fact that someone else took control of my body and decided how it should look didn't sit well with me. Um, they removed half of my moles, but not all of them. It's like, you can have some moles because, you know, you can't be too perfect. But like, <laughs> you can have too many. Yeah. <laughs> Overboard with the moles there, Jack. You spend too much time in the sun, they need to come off. So it was just, it was really, and it just kind of opened my eyes to so much. I studied fashion at uni, so I've kind of been in this fashion world for a really long time, and I know how models are presented and how they're often treated. Um, and to actually have, have it done to yourself and to know in 2019 or 2018 at the time that this is still going on, it just blew my mind. So it um, caught a bit of media attention and I did an interview and in the interview I said, um, they're like, oh, what would, how would you want this to be fixed or what, how do you think people could move forward? And I just came up with the idea and I was like, it'd be really good if they actually just disclosed on a photo if a, if a model had been photoshopped because then the person flicking through that magazine would know that the reason my tights are sitting so flush with my skin isn't because I have some crazy body where my tights don't dig in, it's because they're photoshopped it that way. And I realized, and then I got the opportunity a couple of months later to do a TED talk and I got to pick the topic that I spoke about and I was like this is a goodie and in my TED talk I said that I said the what we should do here is disclose um, and to me that was a stepping stone towards the change and the end change would be the fact that people just don't photoshop therefore they don't need to disclose that they have um, and through my research for the TED talk I found that it's a law in France so I was like okay that gave me a bit more traction and I just said it in my TED talk TED talks are just about creating ideas and I kind of hope someone would pick it and run with it and then I realized a couple months later that there's no point sitting on my butt when I have an idea that I could bring to life myself so I actually messaged my manager and I said I want to do this I want to try get this law passed and at least start the conversation he was like yeah cool I'll talk to some people and then the next morning I wake up with a screenshot text from the Prime Minister of New Zealand um, Jacinda Ardern who's absolutely incredible (laughs) and he had texted her um, and she said to start a petition so I started a petition with a goal of 10,000 signs and we're about at about 10,500 now so can anyone vote uh, like not vote what's the sign. word sign. sign can anyone yeah. sign anyone can sign so our listeners could listen to this and go yep. and sign your petition yeah right I now. actually went on the project in Australia and um, talked to them about it and I got some great traction from Australia because it's something that I think would be great over here as well fuck so yeah get it in New Zealand Amazing. I can get it over here yeah it's just a matter of literally writing your name online we so. will put it on Instagram and thank in our show you. notes and in our Facebook group as well thank you so, so much that hopefully I think our listeners will absolutely get behind it I have no <laughs> doubt about that I don't think there's a listener listening to this who won't get behind that <laughs> I am thinking now though I know largely how our Facebook community responds to things and our community are really, really wonderful and really, really engaged. And I imagine that when this interview goes live, there will be a litany of people coming to our Facebook group calling you an inspiration. Like there's little doubt about that. (laughs) What is your relationship with that word and how does that make you feel? Does that kind of make you feel like, I don't want to be this, I want to be this instead? Like does the word inspiration bother you at all or would that be fine? Um, Not really. It's something I'm so used to. I'm almost... Numb to it? I was going to say numb, but yeah. I don't know if that's immune rude. To it, yeah. Immune to it, probably. Yeah, like I, I'm just. I mean, I've been like that since before I had a following as a kid. People, oh, your daughter's so inspiring. Yeah. Oh, she's so inspiring. Her story's so inspiring. And I think I don't. I hope this comes out right. But I think growing up, I I didn't resonate with it because I was like I I lost my leg and I had cancer and I responded as if everyone else well like I didn't choose this hand that I got dealt I just got up and got on with it. And I'm like I'm not the first person to have cancer or lose a leg. Like it's you know I was kind of reacting to the way that life dealt me how I thought everyone would and so I thought the fact that I lost cancer lost cancer had cancer and lost my leg um wasn't I mean it was inspiring that that I got through that but 
I think as I've gotten older, I've begun to realize that what people maybe find inspiring is that how I've responded to it and I guess my mindset towards it. So um, I've learned to be okay with the word. I think at first I was kind of like, well, okay. I just did what I had to do, you yeah. know, <laughs> I just tried to survive. So yeah, I mean, people people say all that. I'd rather they say that than call me names. So. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, don't call me a bitch. Just yeah. call me inspiring. But it is, a, yeah, it is an interesting question and it is something, I mean, I'll post a photo on Instagram and probably two-thirds of the comments say the word inspiring in there somewhere. Um, yeah. So I am pretty numb to it. But mm. um, it is also very nice to be thought of in that way, I guess. Jess, we finish every interview with the same question, which is what does success look like to you? How does success play a role in your life and what do you want for yourself? Yeah, I think it's so funny. I listen to your podcast every week and I always forget the, you know, I should have prearranged answers and I'm like, (laughs) here I am racking my brain Um, as if I didn't know it was coming. Um, I think for me, success would be creating something bigger than myself from what I went through. I think that's what I really want and it's why I'm trying to build stuff. I've just launched a brand called All Bodies Welcome here because I want to create something that, is not just Jess Quinn, if that makes sense. I want something bigger than myself that I can hopefully help a lot of people with, not just through my story, but through what I've learned through my experiences. And to me, All Bodies Welcome Here is about inclusion and diversity and helping people understand that literally all body is welcome here, whether it's size, ethnicity, whatever it is, gender. Um, So, yeah, I think success will be... I guess leaving behind not a brand but just something that's bigger than me that I've taken from everything that I went through. Jess I know we will both take a lot from this interview and I think I speak for a lot of people when I say that this is probably one of my favorite if not the favorite in conversation we've done so thank you so much you You are so eloquent and intelligent and insightful and we it was a privilege honestly for you to make time for us today. Thank you. Thank you. lucky to be on it. And I'm really I love so much your no-nonsense like attitude to a lot of things I think when you say that people talk about you being an inspiration and has absolutely nothing to do with what you went through but the complete no bullshit approach to how you handle it now so thank you so much for giving us your time we couldn't be more grateful and we will get everybody signing that goddamn petition sign that petition (laughs) and we'll get it in Australia we'll get a law signed over here shameless and Jess Quinn will bring it to (laughs) yes we will (laughs) thank you thanks girls Thank you so much for listening to this In Conversation episode of Shameless with the lovely Jess Quinn. If you love Jess as much as we love talking to her, you can catch her on Instagram at Jessica Emily Quinn. As for us, we are at Shameless Podcast and we will be back in your ears on Monday. Bye, guys. Hello guys, Mish here. I am the co-founder of Shameless Media. Thank you so much for giving us your ears and your mind and your time. We're so grateful. If you enjoy the stuff that we produce, may I recommend our brand new podcast, Style-ish. Style-ish, if you want to say it quickly. Style-ish, if you want to take the long way through. It is our podcast for all things fashion, brand, business, and beauty. If that is in your wheelhouse. If you care about style content, you will love this show. It is, of course, more than just a show as well. It is a newsletter. It is an Instagram feed. It is a TikTok account. There is so much good stuff going out on Stylish every single day starting now. So in your favorite app, search for Style-ish. Give it a listen. Give it a follow. We are an independent media company and we would be so, so grateful for all your support. That's all for me, guys. Check out Stylish and have a good one.